0: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D. and T.J. Can you dig that, baby? Hey
1: guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Okay, TJ. So, again, I want to apologize to our listeners because I know we were like, no more multiple episodes, but that's a loadable,
2: not necessarily no more multi part episodes because actually the second half of August was already planned to be a two part. And then I know September is the multi part.
1: A very, very multi-part yeah. episode. Because but to
2: be fair, to be fair, I am about to go into live shows for America's Got Talent. If you're tuning into that, uh, or if you live in London, you're welcome for putting it on Netflix. Um, but and I'm- I
1: am about to <clears throat> start the bus tour for the American Idol auditions. And so it gets a little crazy for us. And so we kind of have to give each other time to just sit back and reflect.
2: Right. So multi-parts end up being a little bit easier.
1: Yeah. So we're going to jump right back into Dennis Wilson part two and where we just left off was the whole ordeal with Charlie Manson and um, yeah so jumping right back in starting in 1970.
2: A little mildly more upbeat than before but not by much.
1: No. I mean his life is Bananas, And so we're just going to get into a couple other things because you have to imagine that forming a relationship for him must have been really hard after the whole Charlie Manson thing. You'd probably be a little gun shy after that. But he did find love. Aww. And this would be his second wife. Okay. Here we go. Dennis married Barbara Charing. I believe that's how you say her name. On August 4th. And they actually had a son named Michael. Friends often say that Barbara was the best thing that ever happened to him. And that same year, Manson was given the death penalty. Dude. Which, of course, California got overturned the death penalty. Well, uh, got rid of the death penalty. And they converted it all to life in prison. And now we have the death penalty again, but we still don't kill people. So it's kind of like it never changed. So with Brother Brian sort of becoming a recluse in the late 1960s Dennis and his younger brother Carl stepped forward to keep the Beach Boys going. The brilliant Sunflower album from 1970 featured four Dennis Wilson songs including the stunning ballad Forever later sung by actor John Samos on the sitcom Full House. I so badly wanted to cut you off there and be like from Full House. <laughs> Actually I remember that? One another he weird He's saying it to Becky. Did he? Yes. Have mercy. Have mercy. Actually, another weird connection was the site where the the old Tate house was. They actually bulldozed that house, and Jeff Franklin built a new house on that site. Why? Well, he was the one that created Full House. Isn't that weird? Yeah. My skin is crawling over here. (laughs) Dennis, okay, You'll, you'll like this, though. You'll like this story. Maybe this will brighten your spirit. Not just because I have
2: suspicious transactions to a lingerie shop since we started (laughs) recording this episode.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe this will lift your spirits. Dennis also made his film acting debut alongside James Taylor and Warren Oates in the 1971 cult film Tulane Blacktop as the mechanic. The film depicts the driver, played by James Taylor, and the mechanic, Dennis Wilson, driving aimlessly across the United States in their 1955 Chevy, surviving on money they've earned from street racing. That same year, he injured his hand badly enough to prevent him from playing drums for some time. So, Ricky Fatter took over as the group's drummer between 1972 and 1974. During this period, Dennis acted as co-frontman alongside Mike Love, as well as playing keyboards and singing. The 1973 live album, The Beach Boys in Concert, features only Dennis on stage, among thousands of fans on the album cover. So 1971 kind of marks the beginning of Dennis's most productive musical collaborations. That year he releases the first genuine Beach Boy solo record. The single Sound of Free. And I don't know if that's supposed to be Black and White Lady. Released in the UK on December 4th on stateside records. And credited to Dennis Wilson and Frumbo. So he was at least able after this kind of two years later to kind of move two three years later to kind of artistically move forward and start creating his own stuff so instead of being held captive yeah by fears and i i am going to touch on the album that he created which is uh pacific ocean blue but i'm actually going to talk a little bit more about its re-release as well because there seems to have been something between the time that it was originally released and the time that it was re-released that it garnered a lot more positive reviews. Oh, okay. During the three year recording hiatus following Holland, which for those who are at home keeping score, Holland is the nineteenth studio album by the Beach Boys. Nineteen? Nineteen released on January Whoa. 8th, 1973. We're not even into the mid seventies yet. The amount that they created is crazy, like separately and together. It's I can't. The amount, oh my God. Like, thinking about that makes my head swim. Yeah, that's intense. And then on June 4th, 1973, their father, Murray Wilson, died at his home in Whittier, California after suffering a heart attack at the age of 55. And I had talked about how they, like, later on in life, it seemed like Dennis and Murray made amends but in just about everything I read, it almost seemed like he didn't have time to. Because yeah. he didn't invite Murray to meet Charlie. He just brought his mother. But here's the kicker. Dennis and Brian did not attend the funeral. So did he make amends? You know, we we pull from so many different yeah. things. And it's it's weird because a lot of the places that I pull from are personal accounts. So I think maybe one person has this, rose-colored tint about what Dennis and Murray had with each other, and then one person's, you know, seeing it much darker. So it's like, I want to think that he and Murray reconciled later on in life because it seemed like they both kind of needed it. Yeah. By then, his onstage antics, which included streaking, occasionally disrupted the Beach Boys live show. And in 1974, concurrent with the success of the 1960s hit compilation, Endless Summer, Dennis returned to his role behind the drums. According to Dennis's biographer, John Stebbins, which is actually where I pulled all the information from his run-in with Manson from, he's got a biography out called The Real Beach Boy, and it will be in the show notes. It was this year that he co-wrote the lyrics and modified part of the melody of You Are So Beautiful at a party with Billy Preston. After the band enjoyed a revival in the early and mid-1970s with successful tours and the mega-platinum Endless Summer reissue, internal problems stalled its progress. Brian had become an overweight, housebound mess, and squabbles and business disputes, among other members, were a constant.
2: Aren't the other members his brothers?
1: Some of them are, yeah. But I think, you. (laughs) it seems like with the Beach Boys... Each member had their own kind of mess, and their mess was different than someone else's mess, and you bring five hot messes into one place, and they're going to argue. I mean, it like, honestly, it sounds kind of like Oasis. Like, they made great music, but they all had problems. Right. Dennis also felt prey to substance abuse, mainly alcohol and cocaine, and had a turbulent relationship with women. Wilson's relationship with actress-model Karen Lamb, who was the former wife of keyboardist Robert Lamb of Chicago Was by far his craziest that, that is not an overstatement If I was in a relationship As toxic as this one I would be celibate for the rest of my life Their first date Was in 1974 At Mr. Chow's Beverly Hills restaurant That's a nice restaurant, okay That's a, that's a really nice restaurant I don't even know how much How much does that cost, like a plate cost there
2: I have no idea, I've never been so I imagine a
1: lot. Let's play a game called "How much does this cost?" Yeah, so I looked up Mr. Chow's, and they actually list prices because
2: fancy restaurants don't usually list prices it's, on their website.
1: I found that on Yelp. So okay. someone put their menu. Somebody put their menu on Yelp. Okay. And it looks like they have like green prawns, which are forty-one dollars. Uh, velvet chicken, thirty-eight dollars. I'm not paying thirty-eight dollars for chicken that I can get from Popeyes for four ninety-nine.
2: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a little different uh, preparation. I guess. Hey, what's slightly a, different? I'm sure.
1: Gambler's duck, forty-four dollars. Yeah, this is the the two course dinners, sixty-six dollars. What Beijing? A Beijing duck is $78 duck I'm almost I'm almost positive that I could buy a duck for less than $78 and eat it
2: yes but could you masterfully prepare that duck in this style and present it in the beautiful
1: way And whatever I as long as I have one of those really big white hats yeah I probably could Maybe
2: that's why those restaurants are so
1: expensive. Because they got to buy the hats? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to Mr. Chow's, and he reached over and grabs her right breast and said, Great tits! Wait, who did he do this to? <sighs> um, Karen Lamb, on their first date oh, at Mr. Chow's.
2: Wonderful.
1: Lamb remembers, I ran into the bathroom. I was so humiliated. I thought, I never want to see this guy again. But... Lamb and Wilson saw each other for the next six years and a period during that time. They were actually married and divorced twice. What? We were so out of control, said Lamb. Clearly. Yeah, it led to a very wild existence with each other. That is putting it mildly. Indeed, like the day in 1975 when Wilson hit Lamb, prompting her to grab a 38 caliber revolver from her house. She decided to put on an act to keep Dennis in line. You get your ass off my property and don't come back, said Lamb, waving a gun. And then she shot a hole through the side of their Mercedes, just missing the gas tank. Whoa. Lamb said that they, broke, they both broke up laughing. What? <laughs> yes, yes, I told you, this is d- d- everything about Dennis Wilson is bananas. So in 1976, on May 21st, they got married.
2: <sighs> for the third time? No,
1: for or for the, the first, first time. time. Okay. I think. <laughs> it is hard to keep track. In 1975, though, Dennis Wilson actually found the lady that some people say was the love of his life. Aww. Her name was Harmony, and she was built in Japan in 1950 by the Azuma Boat Company for George T. Folster.
2: Wait, what?
1: Yes, boats are known by women's names.
2: Oh man! All right,
1: but remember, Dennis is like Ugh. the the actual beach boy. He's the one that likes
2: yeah, I, the uh, sand,
1: the surf, the sun. Like he was, he was the legit deal. And so, of course, oh, man. he's happy to spend his life on the ocean on his boat.
2: I mean, there was a lot worse ways that sentence could have gone when you said she was built in Japan. <laughs>
1: Uh, (laughs) so George T. Folster was the person that they originally built it for, and he was a New Englander whose ancestors had sailed the Pacific in the days of the great whaling ships. The craft was christened Watador, which is a bird of passage. And the theme set by the original name was reflected in the carvings of a bird underneath the the bow spit, the bow? Bowsprit? I don't know what that is. It's a part of a boat. I don't know what it is.
2: <laughs> I don't know either.
1: As well as the hand-carved designs in the cabinet work below decks. Starting from the blueprints drawn up by an American yachtsman, the craft was built from materials all over the world. The wood included teak from Burma, mahogany from the Philippines, camphor wood from Formosa. The sails were imported from England, and the brass fittings were made in Scotland. So from, like... The description of the boat, it was actually beautiful, and I've seen a couple pictures of it, but I couldn't find a full picture of the boat, but it seemed like a really pretty boat. The Harmony was well-suited for full-time living as she was for sailing. Her 16-foot beam lend the air of spaciousness and comfort to the area below decks, and the large aft cabin has a sunny, open atmosphere thanks to the large four-plate glass windows. Wilson had made very few changes in the fittings since buying the Harmony, All although the interior reflects his own personal touches. My greatest passion after music is the sea. I love its mysteries, its high adventures, and its peacefulness. It's the only place where I can truly relax. When this episode comes out, I will be on my way to go on my very first boat. Oh, that's true. So in the succeeding years, Dennis abused alcohol and heroin. Following a confirmation on airport tarmac, and I actually did try to find what exactly went down on the airport tarmac, but I couldn't find anything specifically about that. But Dennis actually declared to Rolling Stone on September 3rd, 1977, that he had left the Beach Boys. They keep telling me I have a solo album now, that I should go off into a corner and leave the Beach Boys to them. The album really bothers them. They don't like to admit that it's doing so well, and they'd never acknowledge it in interviews. Two weeks later, disputes resolved and Dennis rejoined the group. In 1977, on September 19th, Karen divorces Dennis and moves from Broad Beach Road to a home in Venice. (sighs) Okay, (laughs) This, this is where I'm like, you're in a toxic relationship, you should probably get out. In 1978, Dennis drove Lamb's Ferrari down to Venice Beach and in another fit of rage, doused the interior of the car with lighter fluid and torched it then he walked up to a house on Venice Boulevard Venice Boulevard and played the piano while it burned like Nero i guess ladies and gentlemen that is the very definition of a toxic
2: relationship
1: but whose house did he go into did he just pick know. a random house and just like I wandered set in piano on fire look i know i just set this car on fire but i'm just going to play this piano you guys keep having dinner. By the way, I'm Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Yeah, no joke. So at some point, he started dating Fleetwood Max Christine McVeigh. And. Nice. With McVeigh, Dennis was both a great romantic and a drug abuser and an alcoholic. He had a heart-shaped garden. This is sweet. He had a heart-shaped garden planted at her home in 1979. And at a surprise birthday party the following year, Dennis hired a symphony orchestra to serenade her as he sang You Are So Beautiful. McVeigh and Wilson sang along and wrote songs together at the piano. And they considered recording an album together and dedicating a song on the last Fleetwood Mac album, Mirage, to him. Still, along with the romantic and good times came bouts of drunken destruction. When Wilson would storm through the house, breaking anything he could reach, he used to use her place like a hospital, said Steve Goldberg. He'd then call me, and I'd go pick him up, and she wouldn't see him for over a week. When he was totaled out, he wouldn't sleep for a week. Then he'd go back over and over again. He cared about her, but his priority was having a good time. So basically he would, like, go on these benders, either like a cocaine rager or an alcohol bender and go over, destroy her place, disappear for a week, and then show back up. In mid-1978, he remarries Karen Lamb, and then they filed for divorce. They get back together, and then he splits with Karen Lamb again. So he actually married her twice within like six years. So they got together, got married, got divorced, Got remarried, got divorced again.
2: I should note that when we say these things, we're not judging. Like this is a troubled man. Like we're telling a story of like a really tough, t- like just rough parts of his life. Like we're not j- passing judgment. It's just fact.
1: No, and and we're making comments about. I think what most people would say if on you- the
2: action. Sorry, on the actions itself, not on the person.
1: Yeah, just strictly the actions themselves. We're not specifically pointing to Dennis Wilson and going, he's a terrible person. I'm saying, if any rando did this stuff, it would be bad. Shocking. Yeah. So, like I said, he actually took up with Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVeigh. And the romance began when Fleetwood Mac was recording Tusk. Dennis walked into the studio one night and whisked me off my feet, McVeigh recalled. The two went out for nearly three years, and Wilson even moved into Christine's house in Coldwater Canyon. It was probably the experience of a lifetime. Dennis was such a character. Half of him was like a little boy, and the other half was insane. A really split personality. And that was what I was saying, is that, that, that you know, he could be this sweet, romantic, thoughtful, deep person who was incredibly giving, who was a wonderful spirit. And on the other hand, it was like M- Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Well, and that's
2: kind of one of those things that go hand in hand with substance abuse because we see this, you know, as we go through all these stories, we see this quite frequently when you start adding in alcohol and drugs. You see this quite frequently. I mean, Johnny Cash was similar in that way that, like, when he was in his early career when he was using, he was out of control. And, like, you know, so that's the thing. It doesn't speak sincerely to their character or their person. It's just these are the things that go hand in hand with drug and alcohol.
1: Yeah. Abuse. And it, it doesn't you don't and it, and just because you're famous doesn't mean you're a partier and just because you're a normal person doesn't mean you're fine. By nineteen seventy seven Dennis had amassed a stockpile of songs that he had written and recorded while factions within the Beach Boys had become too stressful for him. He expressed, if these people want to take this beautiful, happy, spiritual music that I've made and all the things we stand for and throw it out the window just because of money, then there's something wrong with the whole thing and I don't want to be a part of it. He then approached James William of the owner of Caribou Records, who stipulated a structured recording process before signing Dennis to a two-album contract. According to James, my decision with Dennis were along the lines of, you just tell Greg, and he's talking about Greg Jacobson, what you need... You have a studio, and your job is to finish the dream, finish the vision. Trish Roach, uh, the personal assistant, will do the paperwork, and Greg's the, co- the coordinator. It's your project. You've got to do what Brian used to do. Use anybody you want. It's your decision, and it's your responsibility. So it seems like James gave him all the tools to make a successful album. Right. It
2: does It's like, here you go. Here's everything you need. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So pretty much creative control. Dennis released his... I think at that point, he kind of earned
2: his creative control too.
1: Yeah. And I, I keep saying this, and I hate to harp on it, but it's true. The Beach Boys carved out... They, they spearheaded this surfer movement. So I feel like if you create something that's that massive, that spawns that many, not only a genre, but that many artists, you should be allowed to do what you... You do. Plus at
2: that point too in your career you have a fan base so it doesn't like I mean I hate to say it like that like but or like this but you know you put you pretty much put anything out and people are going to still buy it to see what it is until you know if it's really terrible then it'll die off and it will get lost in the shuffle but especially back then you don't have streaming platforms where you can test out what you want to hear, or in some some cases, use exclusively. Which don't do that. If you really like an artist, go buy their stuff. That's yeah, they stay. That's how they stay doing what they're doing for you.
1: Yeah, but you also have to remember, back in nineteen seventy seven, there were only so many ways that you could purchase music, and it was either an a track or a vinyl. But but it was like that wasn't accessible. There were no Walkmans. There there weren't. There weren't things that made music easily accessible, so you had to, like, go out and buy this stuff.
2: But see, I just think that's, there's something, I mean, I'm weird, but I think there's something wonderful about that. I still enjoy physical albums.
1: Oh, yeah, I do, too. It's like, I still enjoy physical books. I Same. Will's mad at me because I'm taking all my Freddie Mercury books with me on the boat. Oh jeez. <laughs> so basically he was kind of given creative control on this and Dennis released his debut solo album Pacific Ocean Blue in 1977. The album sold poorly, peaking only at number 96 on the US Billboard album chart. Dates were booked for Dennis for a solo tour, but these were ultimately canceled when his record company withdrew concert support in light of poor sales of the album and a and a perception that he was becoming increasingly unreliable. He did occasionally perform his solo material on the 1977 Beach Boys tour. Despite Dennis claiming that the album had no substance, Pacific Ocean Blue received positive reviews, later developing a credit as a cult item. And I'm going to talk about the re-release a little later. And people that are looking back at that album are looking at it with fresh eyes now. So you have younger critics that weren't even born when Pacific Ocean Blue came out that think it is a masterwork. People that actually think that it, it, it does have substance and it does have that thing that makes something iconic. So it did have cult status. The album remained largely out of print between the 1990s and 2000. In June 2008, the album was reissued on CD as an expanded edition. It was voted 2008's reissue of the year in both Rolling Stone Magazine and Mojo Mag's and made number 16 on the British LP charts and number 8 on both the Billboard catalog chart and the Billboard internet sales chart. So that is something. At least people were buying it. I think you'll actually like this because it mentions something that you actually went to when we uh, were recording one of our first episodes. Pacific Ocean Blues follow-up Bamboo began production that year in 1978 at Brothers Studios in Santa Monica with the collaboration of the Beach Boys keyboardist and Dennis' close friends... Carly M- uh, Munos as a songwriter and producer, the first four songs that were officially recorded for Bamboo were It's Not Too Late, Constant Companion, All Alone, and Under the Moonlight. The project uh, was initially scuttled by the lack of financing and the distractions of a simultaneous Beach Boy project. So, like, they're, they've got a lot of stuff going on, and so it kind of fell by the wayside, but it was still officially released in 2008, along with the pacific ocean blue reissue the material was also released on vinyl in 2017 without pacific ocean blue for record store day
2: yeah
1: two songs from the bamboo session love surrounds me and baby blue were lifted for the beach boys 1979 album la which is the light album Dennis and Brian also recorded together, apart from the Beach Boys, in the early 1980s. These sessions remain unreleased, though widely bootlegged, as the cocaine sessions. So maybe one day they will be available. As the cocaine sessions? As the cocaine sessions, <laughs> maybe.
2: It's possible. I don't <sighs> know that they'd put it... Well, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, 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 I bet they, would prob- they actually probably would. In 1979, the Beach Boys had had enough. Dennis was frequently missing tours, and when he did show up, he was often too messed up to play. Finally, he was kicked out of the group. With his business affairs in disarray, the drummer hired Levine as his business manager. Within a year, Levine had also become Wilson's personal manager. It wasn't an easy situation, said Levine. He was heavily in debt when he came to me. The whole gamut. Two years of back taxes. He owed everybody in every store money. We set up a program that took us about two and a half years to working down the most pressing debts in nineteen eighty. Dennis rejoined the Beach Boys and began to tour. Now, on December thirtieth of nineteen eighty, the Beach Boys got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and I have the address. Mm-hmm. It's located at uh, fifteen hundred Vine Street, and Dennis did not appear at that ceremony. Oh, so there's this bad. great picture of the Beach Boys with their star, like they usually like they usually take. Right. during the ceremony, yeah. and Dennis is not in that photo. His true love throughout these troubled years, however, was his boat, the Harmony. We talked about that. He loved to sail it up and down the Pacific Coast or just hang out on it in Marina Del Rey, where it was moored. <sighs> this this breaks my heart. But the boat was repossessed by a bank in 1981. And Dennis, whose income was absorbed by drug and alcohol, was unable to buy it back. He was heartbroken. Like, I think of all of the past loves that he's had, and the things that have happened aren't as sad as him losing the one thing that he found comfort in. Up until his death, Dennis would show up at the Vintage Beach home of Garby Leon, a friend with a doctorate in music composition from Harvard. There, Dennis, Garby, and sometimes Brian would hang out and make music late into the night. With Brian on harmon organ and Dennis on grand piano or harp. At, see, that's a new instrument. We I don't think we've had anyone that played the harp yet.
2: I'd be willing to hazard that there's been a couple of people that probably could, but maybe just wasn't listed.
1: I think this is literally the first time on this show that we've said the word harp. Unless we used, maybe we used mouth harp at some point. Mouth harp. During that time, Brian wrote nearly an album's worth of material. But Leon says that the other Beach Boys didn't like Dennis and Brian's new songs. In late 1981, the Wilson brothers spent a few days making demos of several songs in the studio, but the money to pay for the sessions was cut off. It sounds like it's not just Dennis that's having problems right now either. Dennis was urged by the concerned Beach Boys to seek professional help for his addictions, but he resisted. He considered approaching Eugene Landy, Brian's one-time savior, but never followed through. His downward spiral continued, and in 1983, he married for a final time. This is gonna... this is gonna get you I think he and his young wife Sean had a son named Gage whom Dennis adored now if you'll remember his father was named Murray Gage Wilson and he names his son Gage so we were talking about we don't actually know if they had gotten if they in later in life had kind of resolved their issues but that would suggest to me that he did you don't name your child after someone you hate
2: no (laughs) well family legacy
1: sometimes is strong Yeah, fair enough. Dennis only learned after falling in love with his last wife, Sean, she was actually his cousin Mike Love's illegitimate daughter. But of all the people in the world, how do you meet your cousin's daughter? But by the end of 1981, Dennis and Sean's relationship showed signs of strain. He was acting like a real punk, said Sean. He was drunk and high, and it was embarrassing to me. One of my girlfriends try and, uh, told me that he was trying to take another one of my girlfriends to bed. There's a lot of questions that I have about that relationship that I never found the answers to. It's just all around gross. <laughs> Still, Dennis and Sean soon separated. Dennis began spending a lot of time on the boat of a friend across from where the ship The Harmony had once been docked. That's just sad. James Watt's annoyed plenty of environment okay so i'm switching i'm switching gears a little bit because i found this article about we were talking about uh, with johnny cash like the white house visits mm-hmm. and so the beach boys actually had their own white house visit But James Watts annoyed plenty of environmentalists as Ronald Reagan's outspoken Secretary of the Interior from 1981 to 1983. But their protest paled next to the howls from rock fans on April 6, 1983, when Watt indirectly banned the Beach Boys from what would be that year's 4th of July concert at the Washington Mall. Watt, without mentioning the Beach Boys by name, unabashedly announced that all rock bands attracted the wrong element and opted for a wholesome program with Wayne Newton, we're not.
2: No digs to Wayne Newton, but what the what? <laughs> you
1: to
2: ban rock and rollers. These aren't even like hardcore rock and. And roll. the this thing is, is, like pop rock at that time.
1: And the thing is, America pioneered the rock sound. Like, there's literally nothing more American than Bruce Springsteen eating an apple pie.
2: Okay. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> did
1: this that's a new t-shirt okay the most american thing and they'll just have a picture of bruce springsteen with a pie in front of him it's just that's america right there with a bald fucking eagle right on the side (laughs) and the gun on the other can you
2: just have America written across the back
1: (laughs) yes cool someone designed that (laughs) <laughs> hey Chad, are you listening? <laughs> please make us that shirt. Yes, please make us that shirt. We're not going to encourage drug abuse and alcoholism. Watt sniffed, as was done in the past. I could, I could see like this button-up, like Secretary of the Interior.
2: Eighties, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get over yourself, weirdo.
1: Well. Nancy Reagan did the Just Say No campaign. Like, she helped spearhead that. So, well, I, I mean... understand, but... but... But wait till the story's done. Okay. <laughs> wait till the story's done. Okay. The aging but perpetual upbeat Beach Boys who had played at previous 4th of July celebrations insisted that they were wholesome. Mike Love cracked. We're about singing patriotic things like Surfing USA. And to his amusement, Watts found himself overnight not just controversial but the most reviled man in Washington. That is a feat. He probably wouldn't even make, like, page 8 of the newspaper at this point. No. (laughs) (laughs) The White House was swamped with protesting phone calls, and even Nancy Reagan called Watt to the carpet, saying that she herself was a Beach Boy mega-fan. So here's something uh, a little crazy. Watts admits now that he hadn't even heard of the Beach Boys at the time. If it wasn't amazing... (laughs) yeah. If it wasn't Amazing Grace or the Star Spangled Banner, he said, I didn't recognize the song. (laughs) Turn on a radio, nerd. That's crazy to me. And there are people that are like, I kind of equate it to today where people will post an article online with, you know, basically a clickbait headline. And and people will respond to literally just the headline and not actually read the article.
2: Oh, tons of all the time
1: so I think I think what that kind of equates to is the I didn't read the article
2: I've caught people yeah I've caught people doing that and like did you read this
1: well there's one great one that was like you know I don't believe you should tip your waiter that was the headline and the article goes into explaining like why the what the fundamental problem with the restaurant industry now is that uh, they're not being paid a decent wage and so they're reliant on the customer to give them enough to live off of. Basically what That's I'm like, saying is is like yeah. you, you you make a statement without knowing all the facts and factors and then just try to back it up and hope that nobody notices that you didn't do your own homework and find out like what the Beach Boys sound was. Yeah, <laughs> The Beach Boys were eventually invited to play, but ironically they couldn't accept. The controversy had given them such a huge boost in popularity that they were booked in Atlantic City on the 4th. Watt, by contrast, was forced to resign on, in October of 1983 after he described one of his adversary committees as, and this is a quote, so please don't at me, a black, a woman, two Jews, and a cripple. I mean, that's just par for the course at this point, right? <laughs> With politics shoved aside and Hollywood at center stage, the normally serene Reagan White House rocked to the Beach Boys summer to benefit the Special Olympics Olympics. For handicapped youngsters. So they weren't able to make the 4th of July concert, but they did make the Special Olympics um, event. The music blared, the wine flowed, and people danced as the president and Nancy Reagan opened their doors at the White House grounds on one Sunday to benefit the reception. A crowd of eight to 900 people, all friends and supporters of the Special Olympics program, gathered on the South Lawn under a huge tent after attending a benefit premiere of the new movie, Superman 3 at a local theater. <laughs> While the young Special Olympians stole the, the hearts, the Beach Boys, the rock and roll embodiment of the Carefree Days and the California Sun, stole the show with a string of their hits from the last 20 years. The group, defended by the Reagans in a feud against the Interior Secretary James Watt earlier that year, brought the program to a crescendo with a performance that had the president and the first lady clapping along. Watt, though invited to the reception, was conspicuous in his absence. Wonder why. Yeah, his aides said that he was in Florida on official business. Now I use official business in quotation marks. The crowd shouted for more as the group concluded its four-number set. Reagan, never one to disappoint a crowd, chatted with the leader, Mike Love, then announced, You know... This is a democracy. Therefore, the Beach Boys have said they'll do another number or two if you want it. And then, of course, the entire crowd lost their minds. (laughs) Makes sense. Love briefly mentioned the flap triggered by Watson's comment that the rock group that have played the Fourth of July concerts on the Washington Monument grounds, including the Beach Boys, attracted the wrong elements to Hollywood celebrations, should be aimed at the family and solid, clean American lives. I think this is... An audience that is not altogether an undesirable element. He said, I think there are a lot more of desirable elements here tonight. And that's awesome because that, remember, that's at the Special Olympics. And that's full of people who are kind and caring and volunteering and, and giving of so much to help make these young people who are candy capable make some dreams come true. And I love that. Like that kind of embodies. Yeah. At his last concert in 1983, he lovingly hugged brother Brian Wilson after a song, causing Brian to exclaim, This is my brother Dennis. You remember Dennis? A barely audible, due to years of drug abuse and alcohol abuse, yet vibrant Dennis said to the audience, You know, folks, if you knew what it was like to be singing and playing, thank you very much. You are so beautiful to me. This was the last time he appeared in public. He drank heavily, mostly vodka. And essentially was homeless and broke, having been kicked out of the Beach Boys in nineteen eighty three for his erratic behavior and inability to curb his drinking and drug intake. Shortly before Christmas, nineteen eighty three, he checked himself into Saint John's hospital in Santa Monica for a detox, but he left Christmas night. And that was that seemed to be a trend with him. He would check himself into a rehab, but he wouldn't stay. He would he would literally either like walk out or check himself out. Well at that point, his battle had been so long with all that that
2: you know, you have to really want to do it.
1: Yeah, at this point, he's almost a decade into drug and alcohol abuse. More than No, that, more than, almost two like, decades, sorry. Yeah. He's almost two decades into a, to a serious drug and alcohol addiction. Ferdinand. These
2: are not like, this is not like beer and pot. This is like
1: LSD, cocaine. These are hard drugs. I, he did do heroin at one point. Heroin. I'm not—I I really couldn't find anything about how, like, deep his heroin went, but there is a mention of him actually uh, doing heroin before, so. And I can't I can't imagine how you see the world at that point. I mean, it's got—it's got to it's be hard. Although Sean had apparently agreed to come to the hospital with Gage to visit, she never made it. He just showed up at my mom. said Sean. He said that he was really lonely and that he just wanted to be with us on Christmas. He spent about an hour with Sean and Gage and then left. A friend bumped into Dennis walking along a road near the Santa Monica Bay Inn. They went for a drink at a club, and it was later that night that Dennis stopped by the Santa Monica Bay Inn and was beaten up by Sean's male friend. After being denied medical attention at St. John's Hospital, Dennis was admitted to Daniel Freeman Marina Hospital around 2 a.m. He spent the night. It just seems like everything is stacking up at this point. Also, isn't it illegal to deny somebody medical attention? One would think so, but I do believe that it happens. I do have maybe one kind of key that might answer that, was that he tried to get medical attention at St. John's Hospital and was denied there. That's the same hospital that he had checked himself into like two nights prior. Oh, okay. So maybe they were just denying him because he had already checked out. Yeah, but mm-hmm. still. Wilson checked himself out at 11.30 a.m. the next day and called Steve Goldberg an hour and a half later. He was at a beer bar two blocks down the street, and he wanted me to drive down and pick him up. I told him that I was working on my van and said, "Why don't you just walk over here?" He kept calling me back. He wanted money and a ride, and he ended that conversation with the word "termination." Click. I don't know if he was returning if he was referring to our conversation, our friendship, or his life. That sounds that just sounds like something I would do. Just be like terminated. Click. The next time I get into a fight with Will, I am going to use that. On Tuesday, December 27th, about 8 p.m., the phone rang at Bill Oyster's boat, the Emerald. So the name of the boat was the Emerald. Dennis wanted to visit. The old friends had been out of touch for nearly a year, but Oyster was happy to hear from him and agreed to pick him up. He, He agreed to pick up the beach boy and the girl that he was with, Colleen Crystal McGovern. Wilson had met Oyster, a mechanical engineer, a few years earlier on his boat, the Harmony, when it had been docked next to the Emerald at the Marina Del Rey slip. After Wilson lost his boat, Oyster hit a key on the emerald so Dennis could have use of the boat. Dennis had called Oyster from Colleen McGovern's house in Culver City. McGovern was a casual friend, and she and and Dennis had been seeing each other only for a few weeks. After talking with Oyster, Dennis was excited. He said, we're going on the boat. We're going to have a good time. And tomorrow, I'm going to go to detox. When the Oyster picked the couple up, Dennis said, gotta get a bottle. They stopped at a liquor store. Wilson bought a fifth of vodka and some orange juice, and then they drove over to the boat. Oyster and his fiance, Brenda, and then Colleen McGovern and Wilson sat around the boat's small cabin that night, reminiscing and drinking. At one point, the conversation turned to Dennis. Oyster told the beach boy, It wasn't six months ago that I said to Brenda, I hope the next tune we see Dennis in is, oh, I hope the next time we see Dennis, it's not at his funeral. Wilson looked right at Oyster and said, Don't you worry about that. We talked a lot about his alcohol, rehabilitation, detox, and why he didn't want to go in, recalled Oyster. He said, they won't let me back into the bend until I do it. He didn't like the atmosphere at St. John's. There was a place in New Mexico that he was actually willing to try. So he, he, I do get that probably some centers are better than others when it comes to rehab. I mean, you're at your most vulnerable at this point and you want to be comfortable So I can get where he's coming from. And if he's willing to try this place in New Mexico, I I applaud him for at least trying to do that. Right.
2: Just seek it wherever you can find it, whatever fits for you, too, you know.
1: Yeah. Wilson was drinking heavily. If anybody else had been drinking that day the way that Dennis was drinking, they would have been smashed, said Oyster. But Dennis drank like this normally. I don't think I ever knew him sober. At about midnight, Dennis passed out. "'Dennis was sweating like I had never seen him sweat,' said McGovern. "'It was just dripping down his face. "'I was mopping his forehead constantly. "'McGovern eventually fell asleep but was awakened by Wilson an hour later. "'I could see right away that he was wound up again. "'Wilson made several phone calls, apparently including to Sean. "'Dennis and I ended up staying all night. "'The next morning, the foursome sat around talking. "'At about 10, Oyster suggested that he and Wilson should go rowing.' We set it up, put the oars in, said Oyster, and he was wandering around uh, just mumbling, I want a drink, I want a drink. The girls had hid the stuff. He finally found it and mixed himself another drink. Wilson had consumed three quarters of the bottle of vodka by this point. When he spilled a drink on his pants, Oyster loaned him a pair of cut-off jeans. And that's when Wilson began to dive into the slip next to the emerald. He surfaced and handed Oyster an old piece of rope. That was the first thing that he brought up. Recalled oyster he kept diving down scrounging around and bringing up junk why he was doing this i don't know because he could we also become fixated on things yeah i think and you're like i have to do this task like this has to be done and nothing's gonna stop you
2: i'm gonna single handedly clean up this marina
1: i mean hey If that's what it takes, I'm willing to buy 50 bottle of booze and just go at it. Yeah. Wilson came out of the 58 degree water after about 20 minutes. Back on the dock, he was shivering and his teeth were chattering. He sat in front of a heater inside of the cabin and he ate another sandwich and had another drink. He made a few more dives and then he found a silver frame that had held him and Karen Lamb's wedding picture. He had thrown it off the Harmony in 1980 when they were divorced. He was really excited, said McGovern. He said, guess what I found? A chest of gold. Back on board, the beach boy sat around for about two and a half hours, relaxing and drinking. He finished off the fifth of vodka. I told him that there was nothing down there. We tried half-heartedly to talk him from going back in, but there was no talking him out of it. At some point, he found a bottle of wine on the boat and drank from it. Dennis was ready to go back into the water. But first, he walked over to another houseboat on the other side of the dock in search of booze. He managed to talk a friend into giving him a partially filled fifth of vodka, and he had another drink. Then he made his last dive. Oyster was standing on one of the slender piers that extended between the docked boats across the slip from the emerald. From there, he saw air bubbles. I saw him come up within two feet of the surface, said Oyster, and then I saw him swim behind my rowboat where I couldn't see his face or what he was doing. I think I heard him take a breath of air. Oyster called out, Dennis, what did you find? And there was no response. At that point, I saw him go straight down and back out of my sight. I said to myself, that sucker's playing a game on me and he's trying to hide. That was my fatal error. Because that was the last time he went down, I took a few puffs on my cigarette and waited for him to come up. Didn't hear or see anything, so I quietly walked around the side of the empty ship and I didn't see him. So I stomped on the dock and made a whole bunch of noise and said, Dennis, where are you? (laughs) Haha, I can't find you. Still no response. Dennis didn't surface, and his friends became worried. Oyster was going to dive in himself when he spotted Harbor Patrol. According to the autopsy report, the Harbor Patrol searched the waters for approximately 30 minutes before finding his body. The time that the body was pulled from the water was approximately 5.45 p.m. Dennis Wilson was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was 39. Forensic... Yeah, forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter believed that Dennis experienced shallow water blackout just before his death. On January 4th, 1984, the U.S. Coast Guard buried Dennis's body at sea off the California coast. The Beach Boys released a statement shortly thereafter. We know Dennis would have wanted to continue the tradition of the Beach Boys. His spirit will remain in our music. His song, Farewell, My Friend, was played at his funeral. And uh, just to close out the episode, Dennis Wilson once said, They say I live a fast life. Maybe I just like a fast life. I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. It won't last forever either, but the memories will. And that was the story of Dennis Wilson. I left stories out, but I mean, his story is crazy. I mean, he wasn't even 40. He had five marriages to four different women. I believe he ended up having five kids. The drugs, the alcohol, the touring, the Manson. bands. I mean Manson, his discography is I think thirty eight albums. Which is crazy. Which is insane. And uh he just had he had a crazy life. But uh yeah, I mean it's really sad.
2: Wow, wow, wow.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't have a lot at the end to tag on this.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I don't really have much else to add. I mean, we,
1: yeah. His story was a hard one to do. I I did have to leave elements out because this is probably already going to be a two hour episode. (laughs) And so if you check the show notes, if you check the show notes within wherever you're looking, you can find all of the articles that I pulled from and I think it's close to 20 different articles and the biography and there's also a YouTube video that you can check out which is a great documentary and it actually points out what we were talking about before in the, the, the first part of the episode about the historical landmark and this guy basically travels around with a record player and talks to people that were present during that session and explains what happens during the session. And it was really interesting. And that one's called uh, The Real Beach Boy. And I believe it was a BBC documentary. But you can find it on YouTube. And it's really... It's a, it's a great... It also goes into his drumming style that I was trying to explain earlier. But Dennis Wilson had this incredible life. And it was, it was very short. It was very fast. It was very loud. It was very hard. In the end, we cannot deny... That he was one of the 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 creators of an entire genre of music that shaped the musical landscape of America in the 1960s, and that's what we need to take away from this. All right, well, thank you so much, guys, for checking this episode out. Here's our social stuff. If you think we're doing an amazing job, and you would like to contribute to the show, you can do so at Patreon.com backslash Rock and Roll Heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. You can find our Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. You can find our website at a thing that I'm still not saying. And you can email us at rock and Heaven Lt at gmail.com. Please come have fun. Interact with us. We're we're a lot of fun. We're some we're some fun guys to be with.
2: Fun gals.
1: Some fun gals. (laughs) Um so we will return next week. Tracy, do you do you, do you want to? Nope. Okay. Surprise. So check us out next week because we are actually going to start rolling on a lot of fun things that we have come up with for the month of August and September. We're really excited to bring this stuff to you guys. And so uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Check us out next week where Tracy takes the lead. She's super excited. I'm I'm so stoked. I'm super excited. It's going to be awesome. So have a great week, guys. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy. Yeah. Do you know where I can find a skateboard, a ski mask, three cans of silly string, and a face mask maker? Nope. Okay. Good luck. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Bye.
2: (laughs)